The Sistine Chapel is one of the greatest artistic triumphs in art history. From 1508 to 1512, Michelangelo laid on his back and painted these frescoes about the fall and the flood. But his magnificent art started to fade very quickly. And after a hundred years, it looked like you were looking through a smoked glass. Well, in 1981, a scaffold was erected to restore these frescoes with a special solution that gently washed away the grime and the results were stunning. No one had imagined that beneath the centuries of this grime lay such vibrant colors. This was not the Michelangelo that was known by art critics. No, this was a new Michelangelo that was also the master of vibrant colors. And the result was breathtaking. For the first time in nearly 500 years, people viewed this masterpiece the way it was intended in all of its color and beauty. Well, that is true of believers. We who are in Christ are often not seen for who we really are. We're obscured by this body of sin. And so we must continually look below the surface to marvel at the identity that we have in Christ. For my last two sermons before I retire, I'm going to preach from two of my favorite passages that have meant a great deal to me and hopefully will be an encouragement to you, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ here at Carriage Lane. And today's text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. The theology of union with Christ and its application has meant so much to me over these years. Union with Christ is communicated by that term that we often come by as we did in our New Testament reading this morning in Christ or other similar phrases. This term is used 164 times in the New Testament especially in Paul's writings and it refers to the spiritual union that believers have with Christ and Paul illustrates this union with Analogies such as the analogy of marriage, the union that a husband has with his wife, a wife with her husband, the union that the head has with the rest of the body, the union that stones have in making up the temple. Jesus also used analogies like branches connected to the vine, which Pastor Sam preached on last Sunday, and the unity that the three members of the Trinity have with one another. This theology should be the core of how believers think of themselves and the prime motivation for Christian growth. First, though, let's deal with the context of this text. That's point number one. Paul planted the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he stayed there for about 16 months. And then he moved on. But he wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians while he was ministering in Ephesus. 
And he begins this letter by giving thanks that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. But then he begins to address the problems among them. They were proudly following teachers and leaders. Some were priding themselves in their own wisdom. They were proudly claiming their rights. There were lawsuits among them. They were proudly seeking their own desires that led to idolatry and immorality. This pride led to disorderly worship, selfishness in misusing the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. You know, when we think of the problems in the Corinthian church, we gain a realistic understanding or view of how Satan attacks the church and the problems that can exist in Christ's body. In our text today, though, Paul seems to identify the chief problem and the solution. The problem, as I mentioned already, was pride. And the solution is returning to a belief in one's union with Christ and all the blessings that entail. So follow along as I read from our text and the context from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start with verse 26 and end with 31, and I'll be focusing, of course, on verses 30 and 31. This is the word of the Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is our passage for today. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord thus far the reading of God's word Paul reminds them of how they came to Christ by faith it wasn't because of their wisdom their status their importance no he chose the weak and the powerless to reveal Christ and his cross to so that no one might boast before God. And then Paul tells them that it's not because of anything in them that gave them the wisdom to understand their need and to believe in Christ. And so here is the second point. I believe God is teaching us from this text. Believers must recognize their saving union with Christ and its origination. Paul says in the first part of verse 30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. He explains that it's because of God that believers are saved and brought into union with Christ. Believers, therefore, should not be proud or boast about their own abilities, their own wisdom in being saved and having a relationship with Christ. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, as we read, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself 
God chose us before the foundation of the world to be united to Christ. And this had to be because we would never have come to faith in Christ apart from his grace because we are dead spiritually. Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So when we were given a new heart and the grace to believe and repent, we were experientially brought into union with Christ. But God had determined to unite us to him before time began. Now what does this union with Christ entail? It means that we are connected to him. We participate in him. We have our life in him. When he became a man, we were united to him. When he lived a righteous life, we were united to him. When he suffered and died on the cross, we were united to him. When he rose on the third day, we were united to him. When he ascended to heaven, we were united to him. Believers are united to Christ now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we draw from his life in us. You see, all men were united with Adam because he was our representative. And when Adam fell, we fell with him. When someone has the power of attorney, they legally represent another person. Well, that is what Adam was for mankind. And so we inherited a sinful nature, spiritual death, separation from God, and the curse of physical death. We were unable to pursue or to attain perfect righteousness, which was required by God, which God made us for. Our nature is bent now toward rebellion against God apart from Christ. Our sin had to be paid for because we could not atone for our sins. But you see, God's plan was to restore his people. And he did this by sending the second person of the Trinity, God's son, to this world to become a man, to come and live, die, rise, and ascend in our place for our salvation. And we'll see more specifically what Paul means as he enumerates the blessings of this union with Christ. But it's through this union with Christ and his work for our salvation that we're saved, that we're given new life, that we inherit all the blessings that Christ accomplished for us and received. Well, see, the Corinthians were tempted to be enamored with the wisdom of earthly philosophers or human teachers and leaders. And they had gotten their focus off of Christ and the blessings and benefits of their union with him. And so Paul has already reminded them in the first few verses of this chapter in verse 5 and 7 that in every way they were enriched in him and they were not lacking in any gift You see, believers have all that we need in our union with Christ. We have all the treasures in Christ that we need. Well, Paul then reminds them of some of these blessings of their union with Christ. And so the third point of my sermon 
is the blessings of union with Christ. In the second half of verse 30, after he says, you are in Christ Jesus, he says, who became to us. Who became to us. In other words, he came to give us something. He came to be for us, to give something to us. And so let's take a a brief look at each of these blessings and what they entail. Paul says, Jesus became to us, point A, wisdom. Wisdom from God. Now this wisdom is distinct from human wisdom, the world's wisdom, because our wisdom is flawed. Our wisdom is tainted with sin. Our wisdom is deceived, and it's prideful, and it's centered around self. The wisdom of humanity, apart from grace, is that man is essentially good, capable of fulfilling himself, capable of making good decisions in life, capable of finding satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God, or contributing to his salvation. This wisdom is prideful. It leads to more pride. It leads to immorality and dissension in the church. But God's wisdom is perfect, is pure. And it culminates for man in the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. And his wisdom is that mankind is spiritually dead, not capable of truly good, depraved in his whole being. Man's wisdom leads to unfulfillment, leads to death, whereas God's wisdom leads to satisfaction, abundant living. It's the only way of salvation through his promise of grace in the work of his son. You see, this wisdom seems foolish to man unless God regenerates him. But you see, I think that Paul is also talking about the wisdom of God embodied in Jesus. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs are filled with godly spiritual wisdom inspired by God. But when Jesus came to this earth, he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, something greater than Solomon is here. He was speaking of himself. In Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus had all wisdom because He was one with God the Father. He knew the Father. He revealed the Father to us. And he lived a life of wisdom, having knowledge of what was true and right and always discerning the right thing to do and say and think. And through our union with Christ, we have his wisdom available to us. Jesus also became to us righteousness, That's B, point B. Righteousness from God. The gospel, the good news is necessary because of the bad news. The bad news is that man is unrighteous. See, this is one of the greatest needs because God is thoroughly holy and perfect. Righteous in every way. He is pure and good And God requires this of his his created human beings. And because of our sinful nature, we fail to live according to his commandments. We are active or passive in 
our failure to do his commandments. We cannot live up to these standards. We do not love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We do not love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We can never obtain what God demands because we're fallen. But Christ came to solve this problem. He became a man with a human body and a human nature and yet without sin while still remaining 100% God in order to live a perfect, righteous life in our place. And so that means that in every situation, he had perfect thoughts and motives to glorify God. Everything he did was perfectly according to God's laws. He said only what was good and loving. He did this at every stage of his life for 33 years, even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of great suffering. And he did this as our substitute, earning for us this human righteousness, this perfect righteousness, so that he could transfer this record of righteousness to those he came to save, who would believe in his name. Believers receive this record when they are born again, when they trust in Christ and his work for their salvation. We are declared righteous. And so we've been made acceptable to God based on Jesus' righteous record because we were united to Christ. As Jesus lived a perfect life, it's as if we had lived a perfect life. I love how Brian Chappell puts it in his book, Holiness by Grace. Quote, as the Savior approaches a small town, a widow comes toward him in a funeral procession. The coffin bears the body of her only son. Christ touches the coffin despite its ceremonial uncleanness, and her son rises. The compassion and the power of that act are mine. In the wilderness, Satan approaches and tempts God's Son with allurements that would satiate pleasure, power, and pride. Jesus resists him with the word of God, and the righteousness of that resistance is mine. All the credit for Christ's sermons, miracles, resistance to evil, and suffering for good is mine. How can this be, since I certainly am not personally responsible for any of these activities, nor am I deserving of any of the credit? His righteousness is mine because Christ's life is in me. He supplies my identity because God made him my life, unquote. Then Paul says, Jesus became to us our, point C, sanctification. Sanctification from God. Sanctification for believers is maturing in holiness and obedience to God's commands. It's being set apart to be holy. It's the process of overcoming sin and becoming more and more conformed to the image of God. It's dying to sin and living under righteousness. Sanctification comes in two forms, definitive and progressive. Definitive means that we are once and for all declared sanctified. Our sanctification is declared complete as God views us. Paul pronounced this earlier to the Corinthians in this chapter, in verse 2. He, he began by saying, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified 
in Christ Jesus. They were already definitively and positionally sanctified in God's eyes. But even though this is true once and for all in relation to God, here on earth, in our bodies, we are catching up, so to speak, with our position in heaven. And so we are being sanctified. That is progressive sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In Jesus' life, he was being sanctified for us. Not that he had any sin, but he was growing in obedience in the frailty of his human flesh as he encountered different circumstances, different stages of life and sufferings. We were united with him in this so that it is if we did it ourselves. And experientially, Jesus is reproducing in us his sanctification, giving us the resources through the indwelling Holy Spirit to sanctify us. In other words, our sanctification is linked to Christ's. Christ has deposited, so to speak, the resources of his sanctification in our bank to produce this sanctification in us. See, in this life, the the fruit of salvation by grace will be our ongoing sanctification. And God promises that what he has started in us, he will perfect. Finally, Paul says that Jesus has become to us our redemption. Point D. Redemption means paying off a debt, paying off a ransom for a person's freedom. The Bible says we need redemption because we are enslaved to sin. We are in debt to God. We're under God's sentence of condemnation because God is not only holy and righteous, but he is also a just judge. And therefore, he cannot ignore any violation of his commandments, of his laws, whether they be in thought, word, or deed. Each sin must be punished in hell. And we are responsible for all of our sins. And so that means that each unredeemed sinner will be punished for every one of their sins in hell forever. Mankind cannot redeem itself. We cannot come up with a ransom to pay off our debt because we are not perfect. But you see, this was God's provision and plan to provide us with a ransom through his own son, taking on a human body in order to be our substitute payment. He went to the cross to pay our ransom, to receive the debt of our sins in his body and to suffer in our place to experience hell in our place and to die in our place. On the cross, Jesus paid our ransom to God the Father through his suffering, through his bleeding and dying. He received the just judgment that we deserved and therefore he satisfied God's justice for us. And because we were united with Christ on the cross, it's as if we were crucified with him. The debt has been paid. There is no more condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. The law and its condemnation no longer hangs over us. We're no longer in bondage or in debt. We're delivered from the power of sin. We've also been raised with Christ in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And therefore, we have new life. We have a new nature that can resist sin and begin to do righteousness. And our redemption has a definitive and progressive nature to it as well. We have definitively been delivered and bought with the price of Christ's blood once and for all. It is finished. But our bodies are still awaiting redemption. And we groan in them to be free from their proclivity to sin, their weakness towards sin, until we receive new glorified bodies someday. You know, when people are prisoners of war, they're under heavy guard, and they learn to be submissive to their captors. But when they're freed, they do not go back to feeling like POWs. No, they should not go back to that. And that is true for us as well. We are redeemed people. We are in relation to the old man in temptation, dead we should realize that we are free. We are no longer under sin's bondage and captivity. Well, you see, being in Christ, in union with Christ, is an indicative statement. It's a statement of fact. It's describing the present state of believers and what we have now by grace that can never be taken away. Well, now in this text, Paul gives the imperative, the command, What application does he give to believers who have these things true of them in their union with Christ? How do we participate in this new identity, this new reality? Well, the last point from our text is the application. Verse 31 says, as it is written, those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so the final point is boast in the Lord. What does this word boast mean? It means to glory in. It means to place your confidence in. Do not boast or put your confidence in human wisdom, in human strength, in human attainment. Put your full confidence in the Lord. And Paul here is citing from an Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 9, 24, which says, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. How did God practice his steadfast love and his justice and righteousness on the earth? Ultimately, he did it through his son. His son provided salvation, provided righteousness and justice and love for his people. This is the kind of boasting that we need to practice every day. This confident believing and trusting in what Christ has done for us. This is how we live it out. Well, first I ask this very important question. In order to live it out, you need to have it. So have you placed your confidence in Christ alone? I urge you, make sure that this has happened in your life? Have you recognized your sin, your inability to save yourself, 
Have you recognized your rebellion against God and how you've tried to trust in your own wisdom and works? And have you turned from your own self-righteousness and turn to faith in Christ and what he has done alone for your salvation. Secondly, the believer must continually boast in Christ alone. We must continually have our confidence in Christ, in our union. He is our life. Being in Christ defines who we are as believers and it makes all the difference in how we live our lives. And when we look at ourselves and when we look at other Christians, we are to see people who are united to Christ. In Him is where we find all the spiritual riches and blessings that we need. The great reformer John Calvin said, I attribute the highest importance to the inhabitation of Christ in our hearts. In a word, to the mystical union by which we enjoy Him so that being made ours, He makes us partakers of the blessings with which he has furnished. Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other, unquote. And so these blessings come to us as a package deal. We receive all of them in Christ and by faith we must apprehend them. You have wisdom in Christ. And so secondly, have faith and confidence in Christ as your wisdom. He is your wisdom. And where is his wisdom found? In his word. And so we're to be in his word daily, meditating on it day and night. We're to pray for wisdom. And James says as we do so in faith, he will grant it to us. And we are to share the wisdom of the gospel with others. Thirdly though, Have faith and confidence in Christ as your righteousness. We are constantly tempted to believe that our performance is what makes us acceptable to God. We're constantly tempted to derive our worth and value by our accomplishments. We must continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and be reminded that we are in Christ And because we are in Christ, we are declared righteous. We've been clothed with Christ's righteousness so that all that Christ did has been applied to us as if we have done it ourselves. When the Father looks upon us, he sees the holiness and the perfection of his Son. We have his standing before the Father. And no matter how much we blow it, no matter how much we sin and fall short of his commandments, We are perfect in Christ. Fourthly, have faith and confidence in Christ as your sanctification. See, we as believers know that we've not just been saved to go to heaven, but we've been saved and brought into union with Christ in order to become like Him in holiness and righteousness. Union with Christ and regeneration is such a radical pervasive and effectual transformation that it immediately registers itself in the conscious activity of the believer. We want and desire and strive to be holy. We are definitively sanctified, but we are set aside now to make progress in holiness, in our daily thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We have a new disposition, a new purpose a new priority 
to live as Christ would want us to live. We are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit with being progressively sanctified. Our primary goal is to put to death sin and to become more sanctified, to obey God's commandments out of love for him and our neighbor. So how do we do this? Well, of course, we need to continually be in the word of God that shows us the commands of God to live for him and to obey him. But we are to ask Jesus for his sanctifying power in us to apply the storehouse of his sanctification into our lives. You see, we have his sanctification to apply to our sanctification. He experienced human life in a fallen world with all its temptations and trials, and he did this without sinning. And now that practical holy living is in the bank, so to speak, for us, available to us to use by the power of the Spirit. Believe it and draw upon it in prayer. Finally, number five, have faith and confidence in Christ as your redemption. When we sin, we are tempted to believe that we must do penance. We must pay back the debt of our sin to God in some way. But we need to believe and have confidence that all our debts have already been paid. It is finished, Jesus said, before he died on the cross. We need to preach this to our hearts when we feel guilt and we've confessed our sins. And furthermore, we need to remind ourselves that Satan and our old nature no longer has power over us. We are free from the power of sin and the devil. They no longer have dominion over us. We have a new nature that's inclined to live for God and for his glory and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to believe this, that we are free from condemnation and free from the bondage of sin. And we need to remind ourselves as well that we were in a hopeless position and undeserving of this redemption when it was given to us by grace. And we need to realize that our sin was far greater than you can imagine in the eyes of our holy God. But in love, God sent his son to take that sin debt and absorbed the full wrath of God for all of it on the cross. There is no more wrath left for us because Jesus absorbed it for us on the cross. And see, the more we realize that, the more humble we become, the less proud we become. And we need to realize we're no more deserving than the worst sinner on this planet. And we should realize that when people sin against us, it is a far less debt than we owed God. God's undeserving forgiveness should compel us and give us the power to forgive those who sinned against us, to absorb the debt that they owe us because of what Christ has done for us. All of us can get caught up in worldly pride as the Corinthians were caught up with it. We can lose our joy and power if we don't turn back to the Lord, repent of our pride, and look again to our identity in Christ. So my hope and my prayer is as I retire after next Sunday of being your senior pastor, is that you will grow 
in boasting in Christ, that you will grow in having confidence in Him alone and all the blessings that you have in your union with Christ, trusting in these resources as though they were your own because they are yours in Christ. Thomas Goodwin said, glory in nothing but only this, that you are in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said, so much of the New Testament's response to pastoral and personal problems in the early church was, do you know what is true for you in Christ? All the power and all the blessings that we need are found in our union with Christ. So we need to set our hearts on him. Our lives are hidden in him. We're to seek to keep reckoning these things to be true when we get up in the morning, when we go to work, when we're confronted with disappointment or temptations. We must hold on to these truths. We have all the means available to become experientially what we are objectively before God. The theology of union with Christ is a fountain of blessing that we are meant to drink from every day. It will have an immense impact on our daily lives. This is one of the four W's of our mission statement, finding our wholeness in Christ. And so as we remind ourselves of these things, in our fellowship with, we, with each other, we will grow in joy, we will grow in hope, we will grow in comfort and security, and we'll grow in confidence and boldness in sharing the gospel. And we'll be people more of prayer and dependence upon his word and the sacraments. You see, the more you individually and as a church rely on your union with Christ, the more you will become like him and you will shine as a beacon of the gospel to the world. Please pray with me.